If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, and we'll be in verse 31 of Mark 7. Today, we are finishing uh, for, or I guess pausing is probably a better word. Um, We're finishing chapter 7 and putting a pause button on our study in the gospel of Mark. So this series we've been uh, taking up since the beginning of this year, and we've come a long way in uh, the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to pause, and next Sunday, uh, for the, uh, the next 10 Sundays, we will be in the Psalms, spending some time in um, the poetic writings of the Scriptures and looking at Psalms 11 through 20. So I'm really looking forward to um, our study together in the Psalms. I know many of you love the Psalms. They are beloved to so many of us, and so looking forward to that series as well. But today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 7, And beginning in verse 31, and if you found uh, the text, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Mark 7, beginning in verse 31. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking, and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you so much for standing. Would you please be seated? Now, as you know, the uh, so-called synoptic gospels, that is, they see together uh, the accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In this text, uh, today's text in Mark, it only occurs here uh, in specifics. But I want to show you its parallel, what many believe to be its parallel in Matthew's gospel. Uh, This text would be, I think, hidden in or included in the summary found in Matthew chapter 15. So that's on on the screens for you today, Matthew 15, 29 through 31, where Matthew writes, Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there, and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. So in Matthew's gospel, there is this kind of summary account that includes the various ways that Jesus, in his healings, uh, was bringing restoration to the creation. However, the detail with which Mark records this account 
And as we're going to see as we study the text today, even the placement that he gives this account and others, they play a significance in our role in understanding who Christ is and what he does for his disciples and for us. He does everything well. He even makes deaf people hear and mute people speak. So I want us to consider today, first of all, the nature of this miracle, the nature of the miracle taking place. Now we read in verse 31 that Jesus, he, he, he leaves the region of Tyre uh, where he had healed the Gentile woman's daughter, and he goes by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through, or as the footnote in my Bible indicates in verse 31, that word through has a footnote, into, either, either way, and I, I believe into the region of the Decapolis. Now, there's a lot of geographical questions that surround this verse, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but suffice to say, I equate it like this. The first time uh, that I was invited to go to Ocean City, I did not realize the kind of geographical traversing that would take place to get from here to somewhere like, what is it, 60 miles as the crow flies, to there. And we were going up and around and over this long bridge and down, and it just, it was this really circuitous way of going somewhere nearby. That's kind of what is taking place here. It's not quite the distance, but it gives you the picture of going from Tyre to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. It, 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 that's why there are questions, like what was going on here? And certainly there were no geographical restrictions that would have kept Jesus from taking a straight route. And so um, unless he was trying to perhaps avoid maybe the re- region where the Jewish people were for a time, we are just not given the answers to the questions that so many people want to ask about the why, the details and geography of what took place. But that kind of makes sense for us uh, because Mark, as we understood him in our introduction, is kind of like a just-the-facts kind of guy, and he tends to major on those things he wants to major on and pass quickly. That word immediately takes place so many times and moves the text forward so quickly in the gospel. So, Uh, Whatever the case, Jesus makes his way to the Decapolis. And when Jesus arrives, we are told that a group of people brought Jesus a deaf man who had difficulty speaking, and they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. I want us to notice, first of all, as we consider the nature of this miracle, that Jesus was not promoting himself with signs, like, like a big, you know, poster board or billboard that says, you know, healing ministry, pop-up tent here, type of right? People were bringing these to Jesus. He was certainly willing and always compassionate, uh, but Jesus' fame and his reputation preceded him so much so that presumably these friends heard of this and take this deaf and mute man to Jesus. The second thing we see is that this man's condition affected both his hearing and his speech, as so often it does. The inability to hear clearly is what led this man to have an inability to speak clearly. But Jesus, he heals this man's physical infirmity. We read in verse 35 that the man's ears are opened 
and his tongue was literally unchained so that he began to speak intelligibly. Now, in and of itself, this is an incredible miracle, worthy of our worship and admiration for Christ's ability to heal, his compassion for the sick and those who have um, these uh, things like deafness and, and muteness that are impairing their abilities. But to see only the physical miracle would be, I think, to miss the profoundly greater spiritual significance of this passage, which I propose is twofold. So to not take anything away from the physical healing, why does Mark, again, give the details of this account where Matthew gives the summary of what took place? And I believe the spiritual significance is twofold. First of all, the spiritual significance of this miracle teaches us something about the nature of Christ's work in opening the ears and loosening the tongues of his disciples. It teaches us about how Christ opens the ears and loosens the tongues of his disciples. And then secondly, the spiritual significance of this miracle teaches us something about the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. There is a connection in the words that Mark uses that ties us to messianic prophecy from the book of Isaiah that predicted a time when those things would happen. The lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the blind would see. And so there is this kind of picture of the restoration of all of Christ's creation in the Messiah's coming that is pictured in Mark's gospel in this text. So let's consider then these two spiritual ways of seeing this miracle. First, the opening of the ears and mouths of his disciples. The context of this miracle and its placement in Mark's gospel is what helps us understand what I'm looking at. This passage, the healing of the deaf and mute man, has a parallel passage in Mark's gospel. And I want to show you the very similarities that take place with this text and the text about the healing of the blind man in chapter 8 and verse 22. So if you want to flip the page and just kind of peruse with me through the healing of the blind man, I want to show you that this passage we're studying forms a pair with the healing of the blind man. Many commentators note these parallels. Let me draw them out for us today. First, the location of each of these uh, healings takes place in a predominantly Gentile territory, in Bethsaida and Decapolis. Secondly, the unnamed group, it's, it's not a um, specific group like uh, the Pharisees or these people, it's just they. They brought a blind man. We don't get more details than this unnamed group of people that bring somebody to Jesus. Thirdly, both groups uh, plead with Jesus. They use, uh, Mark uses the same word, they beg Jesus. Fourthly, what they beg him to do is lay hands on this individual. So you have this parallel running where this group of unknown people bring someone to Jesus and they beg him, lay your hands on him. Fifthly, Jesus takes the person away privately. 
We see Jesus do this in verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. So Jesus takes the person away privately to heal him by touching him. Jesus does lay his hands. In, this, in our text, he, he touches his tongue. In this text, he touches his eyes. And he does so, seventhly, uh, or on, that, on the body part, with saliva. He uses his saliva in both of these healings. And then, lastly, Jesus commands silence after the healing. Uh, and the person, for example, in verse um, 26, he sent him home, don't even go into the village, just like he commanded and ordered the, the healing of the deaf and mute man not to tell others. So there are all of these parallel things that are happening with the healing of the deaf and the mute man and the healing of the blind man. And I argue that they are doing two things. One, they are forming a frame around a central text between them. And that is in Mark 8, 18 and, or excuse me, 17 and 18. So they're forming a frame around Mark 8, 17 and 18. And then secondly, they both serve as the conclusion of similar cycles. So, uh, for example, the text we're studying today comes at the end of a cycle of texts that start with the feeding of a multitude. And then the healing of the blind man comes at the end of a similar cycle of texts that starts with the feeding of a multitude. So it's as though Jesus has to repeat himself, kind of go through the same cycle of healings and miracles twice which is going to be interesting when we study this blind man and how he healed him and how he came to see what was going on. Let's look, for example, then at the framed text, Mark 8, 18, where Jesus says to his disciples, do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? This is smack dab in the middle of a healing that Jesus heals somebody who cannot hear and he heals somebody who cannot see. Backing up to verse 17, he says, why are you discussing the fact they have no bread? We've been talking about bread throughout all of these texts. Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not here. Mark, I think, is framing that question with these two miracles. Their ears, that is the disciples' ears, remained deaf to Jesus' teaching, and their eyes blind to his glory. The opening of the one who, has, uh, who was deaf, the opening of his ears, and the opening of the eyes, they prefigure the unstopping of the deaf ears of the disciples and the opening of their eyes as well. This was a necessary prelude, a beginning point, to the confession that will take place at the end of Mark 8, where his disciples will say, or Peter will say, you are the Christ. That they needed their ears opened and their eyes open. There's more to say about this, We'll get to that in a moment. But I want us to consider, uh, secondly, 
the context in the book of Mark, the second spiritual significance of this healing. There's not just the way he opens ears and eyes for his disciples, but there's also this um, fulfillment of messianic promises that we can see in the healing of the deaf and mute man. And the key connection point here is the fact that this man, back in our text, was, had difficulty speaking. Those words that he had a speech impediment have the same underlying Greek word that is also found in Isaiah 35. In fact, only there in Mark 7 and only in Isaiah 35, 6, when you consider the Greek Old Testament translation of the Hebrew. So Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6, I was going to put them on the screen, but uh, Camilla called me. <laughs> she was going to Sweden. She's like, um, nothing showed up there. And the reason why is because this is the Lexham English translation of the Septuagint. This is a very literal English translation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament that I wanted to show on the screen, but I will read for you here. Isaiah writes, Give comfort, faint-hearted in mind. Be strong, do not be frightened. Look, our God is repaying judgment, and he will repay. He himself will come and save us. The blind people's eyes will be opened, and dumb people's ears will hear. That's the same Greek word, magilalas. It's the same word. The dumb people's ears will hear. Excuse me. Then the lame will leap like a deer. This is it. The stammerer's tongue will be clear. The stammerer's tongue will be clear because water has broken forth in the desert and a ravine in a thirsting land. This text and Mark 7 share that same underlying Greek word. The stammering person will have a clear tongue. Now, the immediate context in the Old Testament passage in Isaiah is the promise of Israel's return from exile. But like so many similar promises, it also points forward to the ultimate restoration of all things that will be marked by the judgment of the wicked, salvation for the righteous, and the eternal joy and peace of God's people. So when Mark records this miracle, he reminds the reader that it was the stammering tongue that was made clear. And we are seeing the beginning of the end of fulfillment of messianic prophecy. I equate this to kind of like a movie trailer. Okay, so... Nowadays, when you go to the movies and you sit and you watch the previews, sometimes my gripe, I'm turning into an old man, I guess, is I feel like I see the whole movie when I watch the preview. Okay? Do you feel that way sometimes? Like, there's like a four-minute-long preview in every single important scene that would take every twist and turn is shown for you in the preview. That's what's happening here. You're seeing the preview of the end, the preview of what it will be like in the kingdom of God. And you're seeing every single possible way that it will take place. Blind people will see. Deaf people will hear. Uh, lame people will walk. 
and you, you see the whole story, so to speak, of what the restoration of the kingdom of God will be like in the end. Maranatha. That's why we say it every time we are longing for and looking for that day. But even when Jesus walked the earth, you got the preview of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, he said, is at hand. And you see this happening all around Jesus wherever he goes. People are being restored. So the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. Already being seen and pictured in the physical healings, in our salvation and restoration and healing and conformity into Christ-likeness, but there is a not yet. There is still a time yet to come when God will judge the wicked, when God will restore our infirmities, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, and no more pain. There is still coming a fulfillment to the Isaiah prophecy, but you got the preview of that fulfillment when Jesus was walking the earth, and Mark captures it He records it, and he connects it to that prophecy to say, you see Jesus? He is doing this. He is the one who has himself come to save, and he is restoring his creation. What a beautiful picture that Mark doesn't want us to miss. Jesus is the one with the power to unstop deaf ears to make the tongue of the mute sing. And Jesus is God himself, the one who has come to save, Isaiah 35, 4. But the next thing we ought to look at, we've considered now the nature of the miracle, its physical component and its spiritual significance, which was twofold. Now let's consider, secondly, the method of the miracle. The method that Jesus employs in this miracle. It is notable that verses 33 and 34 tell us that Jesus healed differently than he did in most of the other accounts of the Gospels. In fact, the only similar account of a healing is the one we talked about, the account of the healing of the blind man. That's the only one where the parallels are so close. Jesus is employing a different method of healing this person. But there are six things that Jesus does do that we ought to take account of. He takes the person away privately. He puts his fingers in his ears. He spits and touches the man's tongue. He looks up to heaven. He sighs deeply. And then he says, Ephatha. He goes through this whole step-by-step process in the healing of this man. Before we consider the reasons why, I want us to note briefly that Jesus doesn't have a set formula for healing. Just kind of take a moment and step back and say, wow, Jesus, he really didn't need to say these things and kind of walk this road here or have to touch this person this way, or say some magic formula, right? He was not bound in the way he healed. We've seen a variety of things that he's done. He has touched a person. He has been touched by a person. He has healed with a word. 
He is even healed with a, with a word at a distance where somebody is healed from afar when he says the word. So Jesus is not being held captive to some, like, magician formula that you have to do certain things. He has power to heal however he wants to. And when we think about that, I think that's a beautiful picture of the variety of ways that we ourselves have been healed by our Savior. Maybe you first understood the gospel or came to faith in Christ through a sermon. Or perhaps Jesus touched you through a song that somebody sang, a a play that you saw, a musical that portrayed the gospel. Or maybe it was your parents that led you to faith in Jesus. Somebody that took you to lunch and explained the gospel to you. Jesus, in a variety of ways, reaches and touches our hearts and heals us of our spiritual ills. So Jesus is not bound to a specific way, but he does choose, in this case, to heal with these various steps. And I believe that it is intentional And it is a loving way of meeting this man right where his handicap was. One commentator I read, he lists the ways that Jesus' actions would have communicated and been so meaningful and loving to a person who was deaf. First, he thrusts his fingers into the man's ears to say, I'm going to heal your hearing. He spit, probably, on his fingertips, and then he wet the man's tongue to indicate he would be articulate. He would be able to speak. Jesus looked upward to show from where the power would come, and then he sighed deeply, which, of course, would have been inaudible to the man, but it would have visibly communicated that he was moved by this man's condition, that he cared for this man. And then he spoke the first words this man had heard in a very, very long time. But not only did Jesus' actions serve as a sort of sign language to the man, this direct interaction where he gets him alone privately And he touches him, shows that Christ alone has the power to save. Christ alone has the power to heal. He used his own fingers to pierce the ears, put his own spittle on the stammering man's tongue. It was unmistakable to that man that Jesus is the one who healed him. Verse 37 says, He does all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus, manifestly and unmistakably, was the one who healed this man. And the method he chose proves it. He can heal the deaf. He can open the ears. And he can do that for you as well. This brings us thirdly to the testimony after the miracle, which we see in verse 37. 
in spite of Jesus ordering those who had seen the results of the miraculous healing to keep quiet, they proclaimed it all the more. There is no keeping Jesus a secret. He does all things well. Jesus, the Son of God, is too good to be kept hidden. They were, to put it woodenly as a translation would be like, they were more than extremely, utterly amazed. That's kind of the the wooden translation of every Greek word. They were more than extremely, utterly amazed at what took place, and they marveled with this testimony. He has done all things well. If you have a, uh, like a reference Bible, your text might point you to Genesis 1, 31. What you'll recall is the, the end of the creation account. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Everything was very good indeed. This allusion to the creation account shows once again Jesus is doing what only God can do. Isaiah 35 and 4, he was the one who came to save. He was the one who was restoring creation. And now this, he has done all things well. It points us, it, it echoes us back to creation and says, this is the God who created. The one who, as Brother Mark quoted this morning, put a mouth on a human. He gave us ears to hear. Exodus 4, 11, The Lord said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? The Lord. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He does everything well, and he can make the mute to speak. The testimony after this miracle is yet another proclamation of Jesus' divinity. You see what Jesus does? You, sir. Have you seen what Jesus can do? You, ma'am. Have you seen what Jesus did? He's God, and he does everything well. J.C. Ryle thinks that the people who said these words spoke better than they knew. Like, like Caiaphas, you know, the high priest of the year, and he says, you know, um, well, it's better that one person die than the whole nation, you know? And Scripture says he spoke better than he knew. They were speaking better than they knew. Oh, yes, Jesus does everything well. He continues, When we look back at the end of our lives, from the time of our conversion, we should remember those words. When we look back, we can say, our Lord has done everything well. He brought us out of darkness and into marvelous light. He's humbled us. He's taught us in our weakness and our guilt and folly. He stripped us of our idols. He chose our portions. He placed us where we are and gave us what we have. He has done all things well. What a great mercy it is that we don't always get our way, that he has done all things well. So also, when we look forward to the days that lie ahead, let us remember these words. He does all things well. 
We don't know what the days ahead of us hold. Will they be full of light or darkness? Many days? Or do we have just a few days left? But what we do know is that we are in the hands of the one who does all things, all things well. He will not make a a mistake in how he deals with us. As with Job, he will take away and give. He may afflict and bereave. He will move and he will settle with perfect wisdom at the right time and in the right way. The great shepherd of the sheep makes no mistakes as he leads us and he leads every lamb of his flock by just the right way. He does all things well. We will never see the full beauty of the words of this testimony until the resurrection, until we are raised imperishable. But then we will look back over our lives and see the tapestry that God was weaving with it. And we will know that the meaning of everything that happened from beginning to end, looking back, we will remember the way by which we were led and confess he led us well. The whys, the questions, the causes and reasons of why we are experiencing things, they perplex us now. But then they will be clear. And we will marvel at our own past blindness and wonder, how could I have ever doubted he loved me all the way through the way he led me? And we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things, all things work together for good. Christians, let us remember the testimony of Mark seven thirty seven. He does all things well. In a very real sense, as we close today, we consider the healing of this man. This is what happens to every Christian when we are saved. Before the Holy Spirit opens us in our ears and our eyes to the things of God, we are deaf to the Word of God, just as deaf as this man was deaf to verbal communication. Until the Holy Spirit cleanses our hearts and regenerates our souls, our tongues practice deceit and blasphemy. And this is why we pray when we preach. Why we should pray for the lost and pray for our family members and friends and neighbors as we share the gospel with them. Because if we believed it was just a matter of sharing the intellectually true gospel with them, all we would need to do would be to sharpen up our arguments, get a little bit more convincing as we told them the truths. But no, we pray that God's Spirit would work as we share the good news of the gospel. Why? Because you cannot argue with a deaf man. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
You're not able to get through with words alone. We need the Spirit of God. The ears of the lost are as stopped up as the man in Mark 7. And we need the Spirit of Christ to pierce through the ears of our deafness. He is able to make even the deaf hear. And so faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. But what about our tongues? What about our tongues? Perhaps there is hope for a person to speak something good about Jesus on their own. We don't need to pray for God to work a miracle with everybody's tongues, too, do we? I want us to see what Paul says about our tongues in Romans chapter 3. He writes, or says, as it is written from the Old Testament, none is righteous, Romans 3.10, no, not one. Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless or corrupt. No one does good, not even one. And then he talks about our tongues. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, and their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. No one is righteous. Everybody's tongue is like this. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Therefore I want you to understand no one speaking in the Spirit of God will ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Once again, the Spirit is the one who enables us to say Jesus is Lord. On our own, slaves to sin, we all have stammering tongues. We fail to glorify God as much as we fail to hear God's word rightly. But we praise God that he sent Jesus the Messiah to loose this man's tongue and show us how he treats all of his disciples. We, want, we went from those who curse God and utter enemies and curses to those who bless him. We have gone from those who doubt God's word as in the garden, did God surely say, to those who believe his word and sing. And by faith, we went from those who despise God's good creation and providence to those who can say by faith, in every circumstance, he does all things well. I was very careful to add those words by faith because for now, as the Apostle Paul puts it, we see as in a glass dimly. We don't yet know how he is working, but we believe it by faith. By faith, we trust him. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Brothers and sisters, we thank God for his healing touch on our ears and on our tongues. 
One day, our tongues will be completely healed. And William Cowper captures it well in his hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And the verse says, When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then, in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Isaiah 35, we've been there today. I want to close with it. Verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Will you pray with me?